0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. As we turn to hear God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found on your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. Consider carefully how you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, in the Blue Pew Bible. It can be found on page 976. It's 976. Again, its text is Romans 12, verse nine through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Romans. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual Fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. All
1: right, let's uh, begin with prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we um, we rejoice this morning that we can come before you, uh, that we can uh, offer our prayers of worship and thanksgiving, to sing songs to you, to receive uh, a new word, a fresh word from you, to, to have your ancient word applied to us uh, and in ways that are, are true to the, the context of our lives, the struggles that we're facing. And Father, we pray this morning that all the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts um, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's see, as we begin this morning, let's just do a few words of review on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 of Romans. Paul has urged us, he's, he's urged us that God's prior welcome, his mercy, if you see it there in verse 1, his mercy means our pursuit of his worship. God's prior welcome means our pursuit first of his worship, verse 1. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. We surrend- In view of his salvation, we surrender to him. We offer ourselves as sacrifices. But it means not only the pursuit of worship, but of his worship, but, but verse 2, the pursuit of his wisdom, the wisdom of his will. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And why is it so important that our minds are renewed? So He it goes on to say, Then we'll be able to test and approve, to, to discern, to see the wisdom, the goodness, the beauty of His will. We can understand this as children. At first, often in our younger years, and in our junior high, high school years, we think of our parents and their will, their way, their commands, it's just... It's just completely enigmatic at best, almost usually inhumane, right? Why would my dad force me to do that? That's so dumb, right? It seems so stupid, but as we grow older, we begin to see the wisdom. Our, our minds are changed. They're transformed to see the wisdom of our parents' ways, so that when we become parents, we're like, you know what? Oh my goodness, I sound like my dad, Right? <laughs> Right? I sound like, just like my mother. Right? We're just shocked that we find ourselves saying the same things to our children because we finally come to that place where our minds have been renewed, restored, redeemed to understand from the parental perspective the wisdom of our parents, of our father's will. And Jesus is saying the Christian life will be a drag. It will be simply mere constraint. It will be, um, it will be at best just a misery, And so often, even today, many Christians think of God's will as simply the fine print, as sort of the catch. Well, he saved me, so I've got to toe the line now. I better do this. And Paul wants to say, no, that through this transformation, through this renewal of our minds, we can see that his will is a better way. It's a wiser way. Okay, and then just briefly, before we jump into these verses that, that Jim read for us, I want to talk about the f- four or five things that God's will, uh, it, what, what, it, what it is and what it does, if you will. How does God's law function according to Scripture? And I, In fact, in Christian theology, they're all called the three uses of the law. But being me, being a, a biblical studies guy, I found four or five, so... Anyway, but, but, but they, they overlap. So the first thing that God's will or God's law does is that it curbs. By the way, all, all these are brought to you by the letter C. So the first, God's law curbs. What I mean by curbs, it, it curbs evil. That's what God's law is meant to do in society. And there's, give me an example of that. Okay, and this is, listen, those of you who uh, maybe uh, have had marital struggles or difficulties, or, or it was just the majority, overwhelming majority of us. Right? Those of you who've been through divorce, whatever, I'm not picking on you or your situation in any way, shape, or form. I'm just using this as an example. In the 70s and 80s, we had, we, had, we had significant divorce laws that prevented, and we often in many states there still are, what we call divorce laws. And those divorce laws are in place for various reasons, but, but not least to discourage a quick divorce. Does that make sense? And there's a wisdom to that, because sometimes in the mummy, I mean, show me a spouse who hasn't thought, okay, that's it, I'm done, it's over. <laughs> right? We all have those moments of, of just wanting to just say, it's done. And there absolutely is, and I have counseled spouses, either allowing or even encouraging them to divorce. So hear me out, there's a place and a time for divorce. Jesus says that, he's very explicit, and so does the Apostle Paul. But the point is that the law actually provides this curb. Think of that you're driving down the road and you start to fall asleep or you nod off, right? And suddenly your tire hits that curb and it awakens you. This sense: of, oh, I need to stay on the road. The law functions as a curb. It reminds us that hey, that in the moment this may seem divorce may seem like a really good idea, but actually it's really a tragic one. In fact, the divorce laws that were often repealed through the '70s and '80s, with the logic. That, hey, if two people are miserable, why would you ever keep them together? Shows the privatization or the depoliticization of marriage. And the resulting, I mean, for you know, four decades since that time, we've seen how marriage as a society, as a society and as, certainly as children being the first victims, that divorce is actually no private affair. That when, there, when divorce is prevalent, when marriage is seen as a common thing that you can enter, you can get in and get out of it at just no cost, uh, then evil is, 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 um, is let out of the bag, if you will. And so the first thing that God's law does is it curbs evil. Okay, the second thing that God's law does is that it convicts. It convicts. So it curbs and it convicts. Right? How many of you think, oh, if I ever say to you, you know, what's a foot? I mean, how long is a foot? You think, oh, it's something like this. And I pull out a ruler, and guess what I get to do? I get to see how close you are, where you're wrong. You know, maybe it's too much. But God's law acts like a ruler or a level. You know what a level is, right? You've got a level to see if something is actually, is it really you know, a level or not? You put it out there in the little bubbles there. God's law acts as, this, as, as a way of convicting us. It reveals where our behavior is lacking in some way. Okay, does that make sense? So God's law curbs, it convicts. And often, those are often kind of the places where we stop thinking about God's law. All God's law is there is just a, sort of like a clipboard, and it's just, it always convicts us. All oh, It just curbs, it always sort of exposes. That's actually more of a Lutheran view of the law. A uh, more Reformed Presbyterian uh, or, or really uh, Calvinist view of the law goes on to include other things. So not only does God law, God's law curb and convict, listen to this, God's law coaches, it coaches. How many of you kids or adults have been in sports, right? And you're behind and you're down and you're discouraged, you're frustrated and you call a timeout and the coach brings you over and the coach, what does the coach do? The coach tells you what needs to be done right here and right now, okay? It encourages you but tells you the specific details on what needs to happen, right? You've been wronged, you're hurting, you're alone, you're scared. You can go to God's law and it says, right here, right now, I know it's a big picture, things look grim, but right here, right now, this is what you need to do. Just wonder, don't, if you say that, it will only make things worse. (laughs) If you do that, it's only going to make things terrible. Don't do that. This is God's law coaching you, right? We need that coaching, that instruction, that sense of, hey, what do I do now? Okay, so God's law not only curbs and convicts, it coaches. There's a lot to think about there. The psalmist, Psalm 119, Psalm Psalm 119, celebrate how God's law makes them, uh, Psalm 119 says, "I I am wiser than my elders. I have more discernment than my enemies because I observe your law. He doesn't say, I read your law. He says, you do step out in faith. I guess I'm supposed to do this. And you do it. And through that doing, through that risk-taking of actually obeying his law in uncertainty, you come to a wisdom. I've never been here before. Never actually did this before. This is new. This is different. You know what? This is not so bad. There's actually some wisdom and skill and understanding and insight into this way of doing things. So God's law curbs, convicts, coaches. And then fourth, it compels. It's compelling. And by compelling, I mean like being forcing, but compelling in the sense of raising curiosity. It's intriguing. In other words, God's law, if you will, is like a commercial for the non-Christian. This is huge and actually speaks to what we're going to get at here as we look at these verses. That when God's people obey his law, the world takes notice. And they often find it. Sometimes they look at it and go, ooh, that's constraining. But many times they look at it and say, wow, that's actually really beautiful. In fact, just recently, one of my daughters talked about one of her friends and just said, you know what? My friend recently said, you know, I want to be more like you. I'm interested. Why are you the way that you are? Why do you value the things that you value? Why, don't, why do you use your words in the way that you do? There's something attractive and compelling about the Christian ethic, about God's law. God's law curbs, convicts, coaches, compels. Why? So that we can copy him. That's the fifth. God's law is there so that we know how to copy. So there's this wonderful uh, family resemblance, right? We would look around and go, you know what? You remind me of you remind me of Jesus. You remind me of God, our Father. You and we will love it. And in, in, in fact, we love when, when we obey, it's so important that we obey. Even in our, even when it's, you know, it's not perfect. It's not, we don't we have mixed motives. We have, you know, we struggle to do it right. But generally speaking, when we obey, Christian, you need to hear this. That your heavenly father says, Well, you didn't get that right, or you missed that part. He says, What? He's saying what he says? He says, You know what? That reminds me of me. and he loves he delights in it and it's so funny i can say especially my my youngest uh my youngest kid uh, harrison he just um i don't know what it is but the guy watches everything i do and then guess what he does the same thing i went over to stood man by the fireplace actually stood on the fireplace because the heat's coming up and it was just you know rises up immediately and so harrison runs over jumps Onto the uh, onto the uh, fireplace next, and just, just stands on the brick and stands next to me. Whatever I do, he's doing. I say a word, he says a word. Right? There's this copying. Right? So God's law is beautiful. It curbs evil in our society. It convicts us of our sin. It coaches us to help us win. It compels the outsider. It compels the non-Christian. God, why are they living that way? It's 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 actually it's difficult. It's I'm not so sure about but it's also compelling. It's beautiful. It's like a commercial. And finally, all of this happens so that we might copy him. And in verses 3 through 8 of Romans 12, Paul says that the first thing that we are to see, uh, the first thing that we're to do when we think of this renewing of the mind, the first thing that we are to see differently is ourselves. Right? We saw that and look in verse 3. Right? He says, for the, by the grace of God given to me, and we're going to talk about the, God, the grace of God given to Paul. Here he's speaking of his apostolic ministry in general, but we're going to see a little bit about Paul's life and the, and the huge conversion that he went through a little bit in just a, just a second here. And he says, the first thing that's so important is to see yourself differently, not smugly, not with superiority, but soberly. I love this. We talked about last week. What did we say? We're to see ourselves not as, not smugly as superheroes or sloths, but what? As servants who have been given particular roles, particular giftings, right? Christian has a particular gifting. Adam has a particular gifting, right? Terry has a particular gifting. You are each of us members, individual members, eye, hands, ear, Right feet. We are all these different parts of the body that together we come, and we're called not to compare and compete, because you—I mean—an eye is not going to compare to a hand. You don't go, "Well, that guy, that hand is being a lot better than me as an eye." No, you just do your your part. How Harrison, my little boy Harrison, serves as a member of the body is really important and really impactful, right? But how he serves is different from how I serve or how you're going to serve, because God has given you distinct gifts. Um, just as a, a story, just to communicate this before we move on to verse 9 here, I can remember, because I just think it's so important. <laughs> you know, in my, when I was in my 20s, I, was, I used to fly a lot when I was in the military, in five different places. And I can remember I was, uh, I was at, a, at the gate. We had all gotten on the plane. We were all waiting to take off. The plane was late. And I'm on my way home. It's late. I'm tired. Everyone's tired. Everyone's just kind of in a bad mood flight's full, and almost everyone, again, everyone's boarded. And this small elderly lady, dressed in this very, very nice clothing, really nice jewelry, she boards the aircraft. And she has this massive piece of luggage with her, and she's pulling it, and it barely fits between the you know, end of the aisle. And, and pretty much all the overhead bins and compartments are full. And so she's looking for a place to, put the, to park her massive you know, luggage thing. And she's irritated. She's angry. And she's looking for a place to put it, like I said. And I, you know what I do? I do? I sit there thinking, this is what I think. Why doesn't somebody do something? Why doesn't somebody do something? And in fact, I even sit there kind of simmering, getting angry. Why doesn't somebody help her? Someone needs to do something now. But it never clicked. What's the obvious thing to think? Maybe I should be the guy to do something. See, it's amazing how I saw what needed to be done. Indeed, it was all I could think about. This is the only thing that needs to happen in this universe right now. That lady needs to find her luggage and a place for her luggage, and so we can get our butts home. Right? We can think about what needs to be done, and yet never, it never registers that maybe, just maybe, I should be the one to do it, that maybe I have the gifts. The reason that I see the need is because what? I have the ability to discern the need and know that it needs to be done. Let me say it this way. Over the holidays, my family likes to work on puzzles. And we do that over the holidays. And there's this wonderful thrill that we, we have when we go to work on the puzzle that, that comes with, you pick up a piece and you know exactly where it belongs. And there's this one piece, there's only one piece like it. it's, it's unique, it's the only part that's like it. And we know exactly where it goes. And you put it right there. And that's what it's like to be a member of the body of Christ. You see the opportunity, you see the need, you see how it feels. Oh, this is what I'm called to do, and I love to do it. And you put it in there. That's what it means, Paul says, to be the body of Christ. Good Shepherd, we're on our way. We are. We're on our way toward being that body, toward being that family. But we've got a ways to go. I'm going to challenge you this morning. Which of you, how are you using gifts? Are you thinking about how you are a unique, distinct member? Paul says, I'm going to review, that we are different members that is, we've given a distinct role. And because we're different, we are also indispensable. We, we're needed by other members, and we're also, not only are we dispensable, we're dependent. We actually, the eye needs the ear. Right? We need one another. We're, we're depending on one another. We're indispensable toward one another. i got to show up. i got to be there. i got to serve because I'm needed. And there's this deep and lasting satisfaction that comes from doing what you were made to do as a member of the body of Christ. So let's jump in here. Paul now moves from verses 3 through 8 to these particulars of how we're to serve in our distinct ways, to these general instructions that are absolutely beautiful. And let me just say as an aside, Romans 12, 13, and 14, and into 15 are this wonderful fodder, if you will, for prayer. Does that make sense? Let's say that you go to pray, you just don't know what to pray for. This is a wonderful way of praying. Start out by saying, God, I just, I, I'm looking of your mercy that you've shown us in view of your mercy I, this morning. will you help me to offer my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you? Father, I don't want to be conformed. Help me not to conform to the pattern of this world any longer, but to re- be renewed. Father, please, be, may I be transformed. Transform me. Transform my, my family, my marriage. Help me to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that we can test and discern what your will is, especially in this in Exhibit A, this area right here in my life and my work. Help me to renew my mind so I can discern what your, your will is, your good, holy, perfect, and pleasing will. Are you with me? As we go into look at, look at verse 9 here. Father, help my love to be sincere. Help me to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. Right? Are you with me? So you can turn these imperatives into prayers. And not just for yourself, but for others. And you're just simply doing this ancient art of praying God's will. God, I would love for my children to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. What a beautiful prayer, right? Pray for your kids. We'll talk about that in a second. So let's jump in here. So when our minds are renewed, Paul says it will redeem first and foremost our affection. Our affection. Look in verse 9a. Love must be what? Sincere. Sincere. Why does Paul have to say this? Why does he have to say this? Because we are experts at pretending to love. Right? We're cordial. We're superficial. We're nice. I hate that word, nice. And that's the worst thing you could say about someone. Oh, they're so Nice. It's like, I mean, it just feels so Barbie-like or something like that, right? I mean, it's just so superficial, shallow. But Paul says, listen, gang, love's got to be real. Now, understand Paul's background. Do you know who Paul was? One of the most amazing things about Scripture is that Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer and an adulterer. And, And Paul was also a murderer. Now, think about that for a second. I mean, the most sacred book, the most read book, first five books written by a murderer, the day of the Psalms written by a murderer, and then you have 13 letters in the New Testament written by Paul, a murderer. So Paul, I mean, you can read that in Acts 8, you can talk about in Acts 26, Paul owns it, I mean, he says right before Festus, if I remember Agrippa, he speaks of just how, he, this is what he did. I pursued, I persecuted the Christians till unto death, is what he says. In fact, verse, 1 Timothy 1.13 says, I was a violent man. Think about that. A violent man. He was, a, he, was, he was, you know, think of a, a religious fundamentalist terrorist. I mean, this guy is, he was a piece of work. And now, listen, I'm not going to take the time, but back in Romans chapter 9, listen to this new Paul. The, 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 post, the, the post-conversion Paul speaks of his own people. Listen to this, this is so amazing. He speaks of his own people, the people of Israel, the people who have given him such grief. If you read through the book of Acts again and again, Paul's not giving, getting hardship from the Roman authorities. Who's making Paul's life hell? His fellow Jews. And in Romans 9, he says this. I think it's so amazing to me. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Isn't that crazy? And then in so many places where Paul is writing, he speaks of his people, Philippians 4.1. He says, for you are my joy, my crown, you're, you're, you're what I live for. I just love you guys. I care for you so much. There's this sense where Paul has gone from a place of just, of just such disdain, such contempt, to a place of love. And he calls us to do the same. How do you know, uh, how do you know when someone loves you? Think about it right now. In your life, who, who loves you? How do you know? What does love look like? Scripture gives a twofold answer. That at least a twofold answer. Love is first and foremost sacrificial. In fact, in the New Testament, wherever Christ's love is talked about, it talks about His death on the cross. For Christ, Paul says that Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. Right. But God shows His own love for us in this: that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's sacrifice. There's cost. First, First, love is sacrificial. Second, love is steadfast. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing. God is not going anywhere. His love is first and foremost sacrificial, and it is secondly steadfast. Steadfast. That's what it is. What does it look like? What is it? Let me define love. I'm going to take to a moment to camp out on this idea of love. Love, as you've probably heard from, from our summaries of the law, the introduction to the summaries of the law, love is treating another according to their worth. Got that? Love is treating another according to their worth. You look at someone and you see their value. You see how God has made them. You see their design. And you're, it blows you away. Just Wow, that's so amazing. You see that they have intrinsic worth. Let me say this again: Love is treating another according to their worth, and not according to their worthiness. You see the difference? Someone has an inherent, built-in worth, but they may do things that make them unworthy. Christ died for you. He died for us. Not only because we were unworthy, because we were, to put it you know, we, but He didn't die for us because we were worthless. He died for us because we were of great worth. So first, love is treating another according to their worth. And second, love is treating another according to God's wisdom. According to their worth, according to God's wisdom. That's it. You got that? Love is treating another according to their worth, not their unworthiness. That's why we love our our enemies. Right? Not their worthiness. According to their worth. And then God's wisdom. What do I mean by God's wisdom? Well think of it. If I'm there in a kitchen, let's say that I enjoy uh knives. Let's say I like knives, I like sharpening my knives, I have this knife set or whatever. I know seems kind of weird. But then Winston Harrison comes along, age two, and he reaches up, gets on the table, and wants to wants one of my knives. Here, can I you know? Would it be an, because because he wants a knife, would it be an act of love for me to give him a knife? No! Right? And let's say I like knives so much that, like, you know what, I just love knives. I want everyone to have a knife. So Harrison, here you go. I'm gonna as an act of love, I'm gonna give you a knife. Listen, neither the the lover nor the beloved get to decide what love is. That is a radical concept in our culture today. Radical. Just because I may not feel loved doesn't mean I'm not being loved. And just because I wanna do something for someone doesn't even mean it's the best thing for them. It is God's wisdom and God's wisdom alone. He knows how we're made. He knows what's best for us. And so if I want to love someone, I have to know God's law. I have to have my, my mind renewed by his will so I can discern what love really looks like. And that is the challenge. Boy, even when you finally get to the place where God moves your heart to have to care some for someone, to see how much they're worth, to want the best for them, that's just the beginning because you still have to figure out what love looks like. Right, how many of you parents are like, man, I want to love my kid, but I don't know what to do. What's what's best for them? Right? You want to love your spouse, but you're like, how do I how do what do I say? What do I do? Do I do I say something? Do I not say something? It so it takes that wisdom from God to know what it looks like. And it's usually not something that we do in our own. It's just not. When it comes to loving people, we often need counsel. Counsel is not gossip, it's not Going and complaining to friends or whatever—it's so going to someone who has wisdom and say, "How do I? What does it look like for me to love my spouse right now? What does it look like for me to love my kids? What does it look like for me to love my coworkers?" So, love is treating another according to their worth, according to their worth, and God's wisdom. And let me give you some concrete ways here. Love says, "This is what love says." Love says a lot of things. First, love says, "Wow." looks at someone and says, wow, it sees their worth. I see you, and I see how God's made you, and I love it, wow. But love also says, welcome, come on in, welcome. I welcome you, love welcomes. But love doesn't just welcome us, it says, I'm with you. Love says, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere, I'm here, that's the steadfastness, I'm with you. Love also says, watch out a place for warning in love. Love doesn't just let someone go destroy themselves. Love, in earnest and tears, says, watch out. Look out. Says, whoa, stop. You were made for more. You were made for so much more. Don't do this. Love says, wow, welcome. I'm with you. Watch out. And love says, watch this. That is to say, love is an example. Watch me live my life. Watch this. Watch my example. I will go first. I will sacrifice. I will struggle. I'll be faithful. Watch my life. Watch this. And finally, you could add love says, "What if?" That is love hopes. You know, when we see people discouraged, alone, wrestling, whatever, me, we wish love says, "You know, I'll stop." Points us to God. What God can do. Hey, what if God does this, or what? what if God? What if, what if? What if this happens? There's a sense of looking forward and pointing others to, to have a hope and to have a, a, a sense of expectation of what God can do. It points to God's promises and His plans. That's what love, that's what love says. Wow, welcome. I'm with you. Watch out. What if? And watch this. Why did Jesus love? Why did He do that? Why did He love? Well, first He knew His Father. He knew his father would, would, would love it. He looked forward to his father's pleasure. He knew his father would be pleased. He knew his father would be proud. That's why we love. But that's not the only reason. Jesus loved because he knew, listen to this. He knew his father would provide. See, love requires, what do we say? Sacrifice. And so when we come to love, we don't want to give that. We're so we're Understanding, we're concerned about giving that of giving. So there's loss involved. There's pain. There's sorrow. There's hardship. Love is a difficult thing, and that sacrifice means we're going to lose out. And the question is, are we ever going to get it back? What about us, right? And Jesus believed. He believed that as he gave his life throughout his ministry and then on the cross, he believed that his Father would provide. He knew that after three days, he would rise from the the dead. Listen to this. Jesus became least in the kingdom because he knew that his father would make him the highest, the most, first. Right? Jesus lost his life because he knew that he would gain his life. He humbled himself because he knew he would be exalted. Do you see that trust? Do you see that that deep sense? And this is so important, that when we go to love, we're not supposed to define, this is what I want in return, but we're to believe that God is going to unexpectedly provide for us. Does that make sense? That I'm going to sacrifice, and I know I have a father who in some way, in some shape or form, at some point, is going to care for me and provide for me and give back to me what I have lost. It may not look like I think it's going to look like, but he is going to do that. So again, it's so important. Let me ask you, where do you need to repent of merely pretending to love? It's one of the most difficult things about marriage. I think it's of the thing about ministry. You go and think, I just love these people so much. And then after a while you're like, you know what? I don't love these people at all. Because it reveals that love is costly. That love is steadfast. It reveals, it's so life, you know, if you get in relationships, especially in marriage, where it reveals how 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 much, how little we want to love. Where do we even need to repent of merely pretending to love? Where do we, and where is God calling you to love? Where is he calling you to sacrifice? Where is he calling you to say, I need you to trust me that as you give this up, you will have this in return. Okay, I know that we're, our time is long here, but let me just, let me just go, go give a few more things. I wanted to focus on the idea of love. Let me just let's, let's focus on this other, the other half of the verse here. This idea of, Paul says, when our minds are renewed, it redeems one our, redeems one, our affections, that is our love, but it also redeems our feelings. It redeems our feelings. Paul says in verse 9, sorry, verse 9, love must be sincere. We just talked about that. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I think Ron's got a clip here. I want you to see this clip. This is a clip kids, um, most of you kids know Cinderella, but we all grew up watching the, the, the cartoon, uh, the animated film Cinderella. There's this one point where Cinderella, uh, her stepmother uh, and, and the daughters are on, our stepdaughters, sisters are on their way out to the ball. Right, and Cinderella comes running, and she has, has made her dress. She's able to join them, and I want you to ask this question: How does the stepmother respond when the stepsisters destroy Cinderella's dress? Go ahead and roll that clip. Now
0: remember, when you're presented to His Highness, be sure. To- She came oh, no. oh, me. No, we don't have that. Girls, please. After all, we did make a bargain,
1: didn't we, Cinderella? And
0: I never go back on my word. Now, mm-hmm. oh, very clever. These bees—they give it just the right touch. Don't you think so, Drizella? No, I don't. I think she. Oh, why, you little beast! They're my beast! Give that hair! Oh, no! Oh, and look at my sash wearing my <laughs> sash. She can't. You wish for it all. Oh, no, dog. please, no! Oh. No, oh, you little! Be- 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 me. Be- oh, Take, me, me! Take it in me! Oh, you are great for me! Oh, scared. That's quite enough. Hurry along now, both of you. I won't have you upsetting yourself. Good
1: night. Good night. <laughs> stepmother's, stepmother's quite a piece of work. How does she respond when, her, when, the, when the stepsisters do that? What's that? No response. Apathy? Indifference? Her emotion. What's that? She's very supportive. She's very supportive. Okay. Um, she responds to evil. With apathy. You got it? Um, I won't, I mean, I just, I can tell you the number of times I've had people come to me in life and say that they have been wronged in a horrible way, abuse or whatever. And the people closest to them, family members, parents, heard about the wrong that was done to them and they responded with apathy. There was no indignation, there was no anger. Hate what is evil. See, Paul talks about our feelings. They're not just our feelings in general, but our, our moral feelings. And says, apart from the renewing of our mind, our feelings, this is so important, that our feelings don't respond rightly to good and evil. They just don't. I mean, in some ways they may. There are some things that we rightly get angry about. And other things that we just shake our heads, oh, just doesn't, just bounces off. Does that make sense? In other words, and this is, this is so important here to see this, that, that, that this, is, this is one of the key issues of our time. Can I trust my moral feelings? Does that make sense? Can I trust that, that my feelings, of how I respond, my emotion, my dis, sense of disgust, my sense of attraction, what I like, what I don't like, is actually an accurate reflection of what is right and wrong. And what Paul is suggesting here is that our moral feelings are similar to our appetite for food. Right? I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, my mom would make these home-baked goods. Cakes, pies, etc. And you know what I wanted? I wanted Snickers. I wanted store-bought, processed, just, just. I mean, just I mean, who knows how long that Snickers has been on that shelf, Right? I mean, how good is it for you? Compared to home, I just, my, my, my appetite, my
0: palate
1: was completely just messed up, right? And it's the same thing with our moral desires that part of being, renewing our minds is going through this process of learning to hate what is truly evil and to cling and long for and love what is good. I remember talking to one young woman, I asked her about her growth. She she was a very, very difficult woman, grew up in, I mean, just was one of the, I mean, she was, she was a, a nightmare of a teenager, okay, put her parents through hell, and then in college, amazingly, she came to faith in Christ, and she grew, just amazingly, and I remember talking to her, sitting there, and saying, what, what happened? And she said, you know, she said, I began to see, God began to show me how much my sin was hurting other people, and I started to hate it. Isn't that amazing? What would we like? You think, think, about the things, think about the things that you struggle with in your life right now. The things that you just, you just man, I just, I don't think this is a problem. I love this in my life. I want more of this. I know I'm not supposed to, but I really like this. What would it be like to set out on this campaign to begin to hate what you love? And to love what you hate and to, to, to have those moral feelings restored or redeemed or just in your, your, your spiritual palate utterly transformed? So truly good food, gourmet food is that acquired taste. And Paul is calling us to develop the taste that we have, okay? And this and this is so beautiful because friends come to faith through the beauty of our desires. They look at our lives and wow, look what they love what is noble, they love what is what is truly worth loving and that is so different. that is so beautiful. Gangs, let me take a time. I'll stop there and we can continue next week. But I want you to, I want to just take time with these because they're just so beautiful. They're so precious. So let me close this in prayer and we'll pick up in verse 10 uh, next week.